0: I'm Jeff Cohen. Yeshua Holstein's path meandered through the worlds of astrology, yoga, Islam, Freemasonry, and ultimately conversion to Judaism. Let's just say he's someone who is clearly seeking and searching for a religious connection. Let's hear how he found it. Yeshua, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos.
1: Hi Jeff, thanks for having on your podcast. It's great to be here.
0: And so I have to say, this is the first time I had a guest where just from the very first words I heard you say, I have a guess as to where you're from, but I'll let you say it to our listeners. They can hear it from you. (laughs) Okay,
1: Jeff. Well, I grew up in a a quiet, very white Anglo-Saxon Protestant town in central Scotland. Uh, My mother's family were from the Gaelic-speaking Western Highlands of Scotland. Uh, She grew up in the more puritanical form of Protestantism that had a special relationship with the Old Testament, even to this day. She says she prefers to read from the Old Testament and not the New. Uh, Don't get me wrong, they're still bona fide Christians, they believe in in all the Trinity and that, but uh, they just have a special respect, I think it is, for the Old Testament. Uh, My father was an elder in the Church of Scotland, so that was the environment I grew up in, very solid, (laughs) Protestant.
0: So can you take us inside your family and give us a sense of some of the religious customs that you were doing to give us like a real flavour of what was going on inside the home? There's nothing
1: really in particular that, uh, that was, I would say, a religious thing they were doing. It was just a general, you know, sense of faith in what in, in their religion. To define faith in those their terms would be to say that the feeling that in times of trouble God had your back, you know, which is it's a very good thing for any religion to have, I think. But of course, as you can see, the problem then is, as a youngster, you just go mm-hmm and you accept <laughs> you accept things just as you grow up. But when you get a certain age, you start to question things and think, okay, this is very good moral teaching and the life you're living and the example you're setting. But how does Jesus fit into this? It's like an add-on. didn't quite add up.
0: And was religion any part of the schooling you went to, or you were in kind of like a public school where religion and the schooling were separate?
1: I went to a private school, a private kind of elementary school, of course, it was called a, school, a school prep school in Britain, and uh, there was a, there's a general kind of assembly. The things they do—it was, it was obviously Christian. It was uh, Protestantism is the national religion of Scotland. That's what it was. Um, but uh, there was not—they weren't forcing anything on you or kind of making you do certain things. My parents, parents, never forced me to do anything. They kind of just set a good example, and I think in the hope that eventually you would come round. That when you wanted to get married or start a family then you would go back to the faith that you a youngster that you would grow rough up in. So that was a feeling. But of course, that didn't work out for me in the, in the long run. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so this is starting to come into focus when? Around 15, 16, 17? Like where in your childhood do you start asking these questions and thinking about how you were raised versus maybe what you actually believe in?
1: Definitely 15, 16, Jeff. Yeah, for sure. That was the age when I had gone past the, sort of the younger Sunday school period. The, the faith was, you know, the um, the Old Testament, and New Testament, all the world, the word of God. It's all presented in a very clear, straightforward way. I remember drawing pictures of Joseph in his multicolored coat, or or the lion with bees making honey in the side from the Shemesh. This kind of thing it was just presented to you, and that was it, with no no real agenda, I don't think. But fifteen and sixteen, I started to question things. I'm, I'm more independent now. You know, you've you, you got to, it's got to come from within yourself. And I just didn't feel it was relevant to my to who I was. It was kind of my parents enforced me, and so you know, I kind of. <laughs> Went off a little bit, you might say, in the Christian sense, uh, but not not in a bad way. But just you know, not not so much involved with their church. That was all. All
0: right. And just to be clear, Judaism is not part of the picture at this moment. You're questioning how you're raised, but you're not looking at Judaism as a possible answer. So, how are you starting to investigate and have your beliefs kind of come into focus about what you want to follow as you get older?
1: Absolutely not Judaism. I didn't know a single Jew, uh, we didn't live in an area with any Jews, there was nothing. It was either Protestantism or Catholicism, that was the sort of the two, the split. <laughs> but I did definitely start to sort of want to have more relationship with God, even at that age, you know. I remember reading some literature from a born-again Christian thing, obviously from America, and they were talking there about the relationship with, you know, with the Joschka, with Jesus and that, and I thought, oh, that sounds good, but I didn't do much about it. It was kind of, oh yeah, it's interesting, but you know, I was still young. Uh, and uh, it really started to move when I went to university. That's really when things, you know, I got independent from my parents' influence and uh, started to question things. That's when things really developed. I think.
0: Where did you go to school? What were you studying? Like, what did you think you were going to be career-wise at that point in your life? <laughs>
1: I think in high school, I had a dream of being a doctor and then a dentist. I think by the end of school, my grades weren't <laughs> going to get me into medical school. but I, I went to university to do some, I think it was physiology degree or something, life sciences, you know, it's very... Uh, kind of that's what Protestants did, was the, the, the science subjects, I was, that was my thing, um, but I'd enjoyed doing Latin. At my preschool did Latin These of 10, which had a great effect on me, I gained so much from that. At university, when I got, when I got there, I remember cutting up uh, grains or cereal grains in an agar plate for some experiment, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this is the most boring thing ever, I can't be doing this anymore. And that was it, I, I have to change, so I, I, that's what I did, I changed a big complete change, changed to do Latin. And while I was there, I thought, well, you know, I'm here, I want to do ancient Greek as well. I haven't done that before, but you know what I mean? These ancient languages, let's see, you know, ancient Greek. And that was possible, so, and I moved, switched faculties, and started learning Latin and ancient Greek at university.
0: Wow, so this is, this is a good example of the kind of major that, when I was in college, if you told your parents that you were going from something that seemed like really practical to something where you can't specifically connect it to a job you might have, after university that you'd have some tough conversations with your parents. But what was it like for you as you made this switch and started thinking about going in a different direction?
1: What a good question, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I had this I had this at school, high school. Um, I think I floated the idea of doing Latin to my parents. My father, who was an engineer and engineers engineer to the salt of the earth. So, nope, no way. This is, what's this useless subject you're doing? It's a dead language, none of that, doing sciences. Okay, I had to go along with that. But once I got to university, that's it. This is, there's no more, I, I can't do this anymore, and that was it. And they didn't object. Allow you to do that. And if you're happy doing it, okay, fine, let you do it. And uh, that's what I did.
0: (laughs) And you also mentioned going into university that that's the time when you have some separation from your parents. It's a good time for kids to become more like young adults and explore. And I mentioned the introduction, some of these different things you were looking at. Are these the years where you start like deep diving on what you believe and what you're going to look at and what you might actually want to follow?
1: Absolutely, Jeff. That's actually where the story really kicks in, I think, uh, because at that stage, I was still wanting to have a relationship with God watching my parents a small boy in church sitting beside them when they prayed they really believed in their faith and they they were earnest and committed to it and i could see that and that made a big impression on me you know i always knew there was a creator there was no 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 shyness no no shy about that it was it was fine it was just well how do you relate to that what does that mean you know and uh, my very narrow worldview growing up (laughs) had to expand a bit i didn't join any groups university like you know any religious groups i just um i'm an introvert so that's where it was coming from i think Mm -hmm. at that time i said i did ancient greek and they did the um the epic poetry kind of the homeric poetry of the uh, the iliad in year one and then the odyssey in year two and i totally loved it i just loved doing that there was just oh my goodness the the larger life characters the the wrath the tragedy the fate the sense of destiny all that good stuff i just totally connected with that but the odyssey was of course continued that and really that's when things really started to move because what happened was um, at that time I was so trying to, <laughs> my, uh, my present uh, work ethic was guilting me into work harder, work harder. But what do I do? I know, I'll write out passages from the Gospels and try to study the words and that way kind of connect more and think about it and that way do something. So I'm doing this in the evening, but during the day I'm going to mention Greek, doing the Odyssey. And I remember saying to professors at the start, the Odyssey was such a great story. I felt there was a story beneath the surface trying to get out. The professors would smile and say, "Oh yes, yes, it's a great tale, isn't it?" But I wasn't convinced. So what happened was, I began to notice parallels between the allegory or themes, I used to call it, between what was in the Greek epic poetry, the Odyssey, and events in the Gospels. Let me explain. Odysseus's return, 20-year return from the battle in Troy, back to his home in Ithaca in Greece, and all the troubles he has in the way. His son is called, I think, it's Telemachus. At one point, he, he, he goes away and leaves home. He, he doesn't tell his mother where he's going. He just leaves home. He's so distraught with the whole situation, what's going on, and they wait for his father. And his mother's very worried about him and they don't know where he is. Um, eventually, he comes back home and it's nice. I remember reading that, thinking, hey, that's just like the tale of the prodigal son. And the prodigal son is a sort of metaphor in the Christian thing about somebody who leaves the faith and comes back and it's, it's, it's presenting that sense as, as a prodigal son. Oh, that's interesting, I thought, mm. And then the next time I thought something else. I said, oh, Odysseus comes back as a beggar. To his hometown in disguise almost and he has to find out which of his people that work for his estate are loyal to him and which are not which have gone with the people that are trying to over- overthrow him one of them the people's called Eumaeus, and he's <laughs> he listen the words he's regarded as the good shepherd amongst the group of course, those words, the good shepherd jumped out at me in the page. My goodness, the good shepherd, that, that's a Christian motif. That, that's, and even the final meal that he has with the, all the suitors are trying to win, win over his, his wife and get her to marry one of them and not leave Odysseus. He, he's in, in disguise as a beggar. The arch bad guy sort of picks on him in the meal. He has to kind of reveal himself and, and show who he is and stuff. And then with the help of Eumaeus kill all the, all, the, all the bad guys. And it's been like a last supper. There's more of these, these palaces all the time. And I began to think, oh, that's really interesting. You know, the, um, the Greeks copied... The, uh, the Gospels, you know, and what they did, and that's, that's why it's so important. But, of course, there's a problem with that statement. The ancient Greek epics are dated at approximately 800 BCE. The events of the Gospels are dated around 30 to 40 CE. It's not so much the ancient Greeks copying the Gospels, but the writers of the Gospels copying the ancient Greek literature. Oh, my goodness, what am I saying? Oh, oh my goodness, and of course that train of thought just wouldn't go away, and part of me was like, oh, this is horrifying, this is terrible, this is like, you know, it's just a questionable basis of your, your faith, and you know, it can be, um, but it, I had to follow it through, and I had to keep looking and seeing things, and eventually I realised, yes, that's what it seemed to me, the writers in the early church, or Roman authorities, took elements of these allegory from the ancient Greek epics, which every, every Roman school I knew, and grafted them onto the Jewish setting around Jesus and built the story up and then You could become the Messiah and then, of course, use that as a stick to beat the Jewish people with. It was like, oh my goodness, this is unbelievable, you know? And uh, this really made me question a lot and a big deal. And it's like once it started, there was no going back. You know, I was, uh, I'd held up to the light, saw the cracks and so uh, there was nothing left for me in Christianity.
0: So everything you just said would tell me that it would kind of shatter some of the things you were believing as a kid or took for granted because now it's not adding up. And once you have that feeling, it would open the door to wanting to do like so much exploring of trying to find the truth and what you're going to believe in. And I mentioned all these different things in the introduction that you seemingly explored. So is is that what happened next? Once you decided that what I was raised on wasn't gonna be for me going forward, I better find out what I believe in and what I can anchor my life on?
1: Absolutely, that's totally right, that's correct. That was, I I had to start, I knew there was a creator, there was a God. So I had to start uh, searching myself for the truth. You know, I was uh, uh, just looking at all these different things, religions, trying to find out if something clicked for me, Um, you know, Islam, Buddhism, transcendental meditation, uh, yoga even things like history of the Freemasons Knights Temple all this kind of weird stuff I was into all that stuff but it's about three years this went on for as I was you know finishing college and starting a job and that so I was doing this constant searching but I realised after a while I didn't want a cult I didn't want a secret society I, I wanted a <laughs> mainstream but of course I never that, even thought about Judaism at that time at all unlike other People on your podcast I've heard of who've been speaking from come from evangelical backgrounds. I never questioned the Old Testament. I never got into like the proof of oh this passage says this or this passage says that or it's pro it's wrong. I never even go into that at all. My beef was with the, the New Testament, so I, I accepted it, but I didn't think of becoming Jewish at the time. Or that was a contender for my loyalties. I was still at that stage under the general Christian assumption that to go from Christianity to Judaism is a backward step and because that's the way that it's presented the old and the new and also because I believe that somebody who was Jewish was uh, you're, you're either Jewish or you're not not Jewish it was you were born a Jew and uh, if you said to me what about converts I would have said okay is are people who some technicality are not Jewish either their father was Jewish or that some grandparent was, was Jewish and they weren't raised that way but they, you know it was a, a connection into a family and I had absolutely nothing so I definitely was searching this all this time for my faith in God and what that
0: would be. I get this sense that you just described this three-year period where you went through all these things you were looking at, hoping you were going to find your home, but clearly you didn't. So the search was continuing. How does Judaism find its first entry into your life? Because all the answers you've given so far would tell me you would keep the search anywhere but Judaism. So there must have been a point where you said, maybe there's something here to explore. So how did it first come into your life? <laughs> I Hashem arranged
1: it at the same time as I was having my crisis of faith in Christianity. I had a desire to learn Hebrew. This wasn't because I wanted to move to Israel. I had no idea what language they spoke in Israel at all. I couldn't have told you that at all that time. But you know, Latin is an ancient language. Ancient Greek is more ancient than Latin. And what's more ancient than ancient Greek? Ancient Hebrew. So I, I had this kind of strange desire of, I like ancient languages, let's do ancient Hebrew. So I was very excited about doing this and I asked the professors and they said no. No, I'm sorry, you're doing two languages it is, it's, it's enough. Uh, a third language did not have a bit too much for you. Oh, okay, put it aside. side. But uh, that desire to learn Hebrew didn't go away. And even after I left college, and that actually until I was about 24 years old, and there the times I, like, I still want to learn Hebrew. And there were no classes in this, so I had to teach myself. And I bought myself a little book and teach myself Biblical Hebrew. <laughs> And I remember learning the alphabet and the, the, the vowel sounds. It was also interesting. I loved, you know, the, the sounds. and It's very hard, though, is, to learn it, because I had no real justification of why I'm doing this. So I could start learning it, and then 10 minutes later, oh, this is too hard. I don't know about a Siri, a Cholam. I don't know the difference is. And I put the book aside and leave it, and that was it. So I wouldn't bother. But I kept going back to that book the next day, next week, next month. And this went on for about two years. And then I'm thinking, wow, we should find a song about Judaism. Still not thinking about conversion, it not on the cards at all, but let's find out something about the religion, it's an interest, you know, This is obviously interesting, great history in that. So one of the first books I bought was about a man who, and his son returned to his roots, and uh, in it he had a few quotes, not many, from the Rambam and Rabbi Schneerson, and reading those quotes, that was an absolute, poof, unbelievable, the raw energy, it was just, especially Rabbi Schneerson's, the, the, the words just totally lit inside of me, it was like a feeling of energy, I wanted to live my life, do things, got involved with things, I wanted to, uh, it was like the whole fire was there, it was an amazing, amazing thing, and from that point on <laughs> I started this constant search for books and this and that and, and into Israel and CDs and all sorts of stuff I was buying and trying to find so many things more about Judaism, I mean I, I had so much self-doubt, there's no way I'm going to become Jewish but anyway, let's see where this goes and just keep finding it buying band stuff and Yiddish stuff and Israel all sorts of things I was into, finding out about it and this one for about a year. <laughs> I thought, wait a minute, I'm going to go crazy here. I've got to do something about this. Still had me a single Jew in my life. So the BBC, <laughs> of all channels, had a documentary about the oldest purpose-built synagogue in Glasgow. It was in, and it was called the, uh, the Garnehill Hebrew Congregation. Great. So i got the phone book out, got the number, and phoned them up. I didn't quite know what I was doing, but I've got to phone them. Phone them up. Uh, told them my story. Oh, yes, man heard me. Very interesting. OK, you want to speak to the warden of the show? Oh, OK, give me his number on the show again. Start this kind of. I'm interested in what I do, and he hears me out. And says, "Oh yes, um you want to speak to Mr. Jacobs?" Oh, okay, got Mr. Jacobs' number. Phone up Mr. Jacobs. He hears me out. Oh, you want to speak to Rabbi Rubin? Oh, <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> okay, okay, so, no problem. Phone up Rabbi Rubin. Of course, no answer. Got his voicemail. Left the message. Next day, no answer. Day after that, no answer. Day after that, no answer. End of the week, no answer. Oh no, this is. I was so worried too at the time, I thought, oh, they probably think I'm some nut job and they're going to call the police, I'm crazy, this is totally off the chart. And I thought, oh, I can't phone him again, he'll definitely call the police then if they do that. I'll him um, a letter, so I wrote a letter to me synagogue, so just saying the same thing, put it in the mail, of course waited, nothing happened. It might as well have gone into a black hole, the letter just seemed to disappear. But four months later, out of the blue, I got a letter back from him, and he said to hear your, you know, your, what you've been feeling and stuff, and it seems quite genuine, I'd love to meet you. But you probably want to speak to Rabbi Weiss, because he's the London-based representative in Glasgow and the person you'd be speaking to if you were to go ahead and do conversion anyway. Great, so I found from that Rabbi Weiss and uh, spoke to him, arranged to meet him the next day in his house and uh, went to see him. I don't remember much of that first meeting. I, I was so nervous, I think, you know, the, that feeling when you went to a from house with the caduceus in the air. You, and I walked into it. It was like, oh my goodness, I am such an, <laughs> an alien here. But um, he, he ushered me into his drawing room. And I remember when he kept saying to me, slow down, slow down, because I was speaking very fast. And he, but the first thing he said to me was, Do you feel like a desire to move to Israel? I said, No. He said, OK. So he gave me a book about how to be a righteous Gentile by Rabbi Chlorphine and said, Read this, come back in a month. And that was it. I left okay so i read, <laughs> read this book <laughs> how to be a righteous gentile the, you know being noach all the seven mitzvahs and that seemed very good no it wasn't quite so i came back to him in a month's time and said it to him you know yes it's, it's not what i'm looking for you know i don't want to be a shabbos guy i i will come this far i want to do mitzvahs and learn torah and I, you know so then it started a process of reading uh, other books again one and once a month things like Roy miller's books you know behold the nation rejoice the youth big big books it's really they're fantastic and I, I enjoyed this so much and this went on for about eight or nine months Learning, you know, uh, meeting him within his, ho- in his house and, and uh, as- asking him questions and things. And eventually, um, you know, I realised that I was pretty well coming close towards wanting to go through the conversion. So I asked the question uh, and he said to me, well, about five to six years living as a lodger with a Froome family in either Manchester or London. So I went away and thought about it and came back and thought, yeah, I want to do it. I want to do conversion. So, Great. So he uh, got in touch with the garrows department. They got a letter to me very quickly saying, I think it was of Simon. Was going to deal with my case. He was a waitress now and get back in touch within six weeks' time when he got back. And uh, I had a meeting with my parents. <laughs> I've always been very close to my mum and father, very close to them, you know, drive back at the end of the week, going for a, having a meal and talking to them and stuff. On this occasion, they knew I was serious about conversion. And uh, they said, Look, my well, mother said, Look, you, you don't know any other Jew apart in this one man, and he's home. And you're going to go to someone, They put it, a black hat community in Manchester, London, the doors are closed behind me. And that's it. they lose their son. And more than that, they said, my mother saying, you wouldn't be accepted. You've been baptized in the Church of Scotland. You're not going to be happy. It made sense. It seemed like too much of a step for me at that time to do that. It was just, I'd never set foot in a shul, so it was just, <laughs> didn't know anyone in the community. And I took a step back.
0: So if I'm hearing you right, you're a guy who's searching and seeking. And as you come across these Jewish books, suddenly like this flame is turned on like this is where I want to head but it almost seems like it accelerated too fast too many steps happening all at once that I guess through conversations with your parents and then just understanding like just how much change would be happening if you followed through with this is that what made you slow down and just kind of try to take this as baby steps as opposed to doing it all in the short term? Is that where your, your head was at at that point? I think
1: so. I think because I was living my own. I didn't know any other Jewish people at all in a social way. Not where I lived in Glasgow. And uh, this one rabbi was all the person I met who was Jewish. So you've read all these books and things and you, it all sounds great. But that's fine to have an interest. But it doesn't mean to say you're going to uproot yourself and go and become actually Jewish. That's a entirely different thing. So... In a sense it was probably a good thing, you think, stop and think about things and I definitely took my foot off the gas pedal I stopped buying stuff and just stopped obsessing, just, just let go, let go and see if it, see if it happens And uh, that was my next thing, I told the rabbi, in back told him, I, I felt I was letting him down But he seemed quite happy, said, oh great, you made a decision, that's really good, I'm gl- glad for you, uh, you know, it's, uh, that's good uh, wish you well, and nice to meet you, and cheerio, and that was it So uh, I remember sitting in the car outside his house and I was like, oh, what have I done? I kind of betrayed myself I was like oh I totally forgot all those good feelings the energy and all the you know the, the sense of almost familiarity and recognition all that stuff it just for like common sense I felt so bad I was like oh you know but there's nothing else I could do at that stage it just that it seemed that it seemed the most sensible route what I was doing just to say look take a step back and don't rush into things that's what I did
0: Let's go into that step back. And I never got to ask you, as the guy who chose to study Latin, what were you doing career-wise? Because this story has advanced now probably about a decade through your 20s as you're doing all this exploration. So what are you doing career-wise? And then connected to that, as you're taking a step back, what does that mean religiously? Like, where are you holding? What are you thinking? Like, what are you going to do from there now that you've slowed things down on the Jewish front?
1: Uh, i would kind of fallen into computer programming, working in large companies in Glasgow. Didn't really affect in a religious sense at all. I wasn't going to church or anything like that. I wasn't there was nothing else I was doing at that time. Just working and still being close to my parents, you know. In a the sense, uh, they knew what I was what I was up to in that. So, I mean, I didn't I didn't jump into anything really. I mean, I was buying these books and all this sort of stuff, but it just it was over a number of years buying stuff and that felt good. That seems good. Everything seemed good. You know, when I found out more about Judaism, it was finding more seemed good. Let's find it more and keep going, keep going. There was no sense of wanting to go to go back. That was. So when I, I, I told that rabbi I didn't want to do Orthodox conversion in Britain at the time, it was tough because I, I really felt I could, I could do it, but then my common sense whoever told me it was, it was too much just now, maybe. So slow down. But anyway, a few months later, I was doing a search on the internet, and I don't know what it was I was looking for, but I found the link to the Glasgow Reform Synagogue. I didn't know there was any Reform Synagogues at all in Scotland. I think they were all in England. It was the one synagogue in Glasgow. So, of course, I clicked the link, saw a bit of the synagogue, phoned up the person at the synagogue. Yeah, sure, come to the synagogue on Shabbos. Oh, I had to get off the ground in the back of my chair when I heard that. I thought, what, come to the synagogue? Are you crazy? Come to the synagogue? Yeah, sure, come and meet the rabbi. Okay, so <laughs> I did that. And after a few Shabbos services at the synagogue there, um, they said, come to the Wednesday night class, which was you know, basically Judaism 101 class, effectively the pros- proselyte class. You know, Come to that, and I started learning. And um, doing more and more and more, and it's, you know, it's picking up, it's snowballing in effect. Six months later, standing in front of the rabbi saying, Do you want to start the 12 month conversion program? Yep, that's it, great. So I was starting to get involved, you know, it was a different, different approach. Everybody know, can like, just come start doing stuff, start doing stuff and get involved. And that was it, it was, uh, I was getting involved with the reform.
0: I'm guessing, though, the fact that you're on this podcast says something wasn't quite fulfilling after that conversion process that you could hold as a reformed Jew. So, what, what happened? through the conversion and afterwards that your story didn't end there? I think it was
1: towards the end of my conversion point after the year, certain things I noticed that didn't seem quite right. Things like one older lady in the, in the show would, would light candles on Friday night in the synagogue. I remember one time she lighting it and I'm thinking, it's pitch black outside and now she's lighting a candle? I, I, it didn't seem quite right, but anyway, okay, that, that's what they do here. Or even the time when, um, when I asked the, the female rabbi at the time to show me to put tefillin on and her, and her response was, oh, I don't like to wrap myself in black leather. I thought, oh, it doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't seem quite right, but um, OK, it's just her view, you know, it doesn't mean anyone else. And I was, I was learning to leading to laying Torah, Lane in leading services, helping out in the Sunday morning with the kids. at a class of kids I was teaching. You know, I was doing so much stuff in that as much as I could, but I was going to think, I don't think this is for me. And I was thinking back, but thoughts, thinking back, oh, well, I've got to go back to that rabbi and start the Orthodox process again, you know, with that. But what happened then was, later on that year, went on a trip to Israel, I <laughs> loved it so much, you know, it was just uh, like, the, being in Israel and then coming back home I felt a piece of me was still in Israel, you know, <laughs> it's like uh, amazing feelings, like, oh my goodness, I've got to go back. So I was, uh, no no dependence. I was free to do what I wanted really in effect, and I thought okay do a year of study in Israel. I thought, that sounds good, great, and then uh, but I thought more I thought about it, well a year of study and then what, come back to Glasgow? I, I totally outgrown in Glasgow I think, in, you know, in the Jewish community, for my needs anyway, now you want to live in Israel actually go and live there and of course asking an Israeli really friend and first his first response was no no don't do it. that's a crazy idea no it's too, too tough it's too hard <laughs> so, okay okay but I, I really wanted to go and, and do that and the, the time was right for me to do that shall we say many people i met before i left said oh i had a chance to go to Israel so many years ago but got married my wife got pregnant and it didn't work out so i realized this was a chance for me now to do this and to really you know move forward because becoming more jewish Israel seemed to be the best place to do it. It And that's when I made plans to to move to Israel.
0: And you made it happen? You quit your job and you picked up and and went there? And where did you go specifically? I didn't know
1: anyone in Israel at all. I spoke to the the chairman of the Reform Shul for advice, and he recommended a place in Arad in the south called the World Union of Jewish Students. And this was like an introduction to Israel program. It was whatever it seemed interesting enough. So I checked out their website. They had an Orthodox conversion part to it. Great! I'll do that when I'm there because I still want to do Orthodox conversion. I was—I I knew that now. I wanted to do that, so I'll do that there. Great! And uh, and off I went. And by the um, the current laws in the state of Israel, with a reformed conversion, you're able to go and become a citizen, to make a利亚, which was very very important because I needed that to do conversion. I saw so many people in Israel who either couldn't get tzedakah or whatever, or hand done a Reform, you know, an Orthodox conversion into its lares, and were told to go back and so. I totally landed my feet. It was just from conversion and made Aliyah, first off in Arad, in this place in the south. Very, very quickly, I realised it was a secular Zionist place, not the best place to do an Orthodox conversion. There were musicians and artists and people who wanted to kind of sit in the desert and meditate. It wasn't really what I was looking for. And one rabbi coming once a week for one hour for the class wasn't really going to do it. So I got a meal with a family in Arad. They said to me, look, a place called Machon Meir. the yeshiva in Yishalayim. She got go there, they do um, conversion programmes. After about three months at this place in Arad, I checked out the uh, place in Machon Meir. Where the rabbis there? Yes, conversion program, great. So I moved to Machon Mach and Meir only lasted three weeks, <laughs> because <laughs> less than a year before I'd come from being a professional with one apartment, car, member of the private golf club. To suddenly sharing bunk beds with 19 year olds, it wasn't, and I was 33. It wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't, I guess, how long is this conversion process going to be? And they wouldn't tell me, of course, it depended entirely on your own. So, so I was like, Oh, I can't be doing this, this is not, <laughs> and I had to leave. But I met somebody there who had done his conversion at Kabutsi Avne because they do conversion programs, you volunteer, you work three days a week, and three days a week, you have classes. Great! So, I went to Kabutsi they checked out, yes, great! So, psh, straight to them, and it was a five month program. Um, the classes were pretty good and it was working in the kibbutz, which I enjoyed. It was a good experience, you know. I didn't mind getting up early in the morning. That was very important. And just working, and I, I, I had so many great jobs when I was there, working in the kitchens or working for the handyman, uh, working in the, the, the refit, working the cows, and finally the best job was working with the cheesemaker. was that was great. <laughs> Hard work, but really exciting, really fun. <laughs> I enjoyed it, it so a good experience. And uh, completed my, my Rabbanuk conversion with Kibbutz army Well,
0: as I'm listening to your story, I'm thinking, what a remarkable change from the way you were living where you were, the kind of job you had, the kind of people you were surrounded with. How did you have the the courage to really leave all that behind and go by yourself? Not even like, oh, me and a buddy are going to go do this and I have someone to lean on. You're really by yourself and you're even knowing enough about yourself to be in the wrong places a few times and keep searching until you get to something that feels right. Like do you ever look back on where did you find that inner courage to make all these changes?
1: I just felt to keep going. I mean, I, every stage I was at, there was something in it that was good that I took from it, you know. But then I realized I've got to move on. It wasn't This wasn't my sort of final stopping point. So, yeah, so Kibbutz Shadi was great. I remember I finished with them the process of the Rabbanit and Shalim. And then I wanted to go and learn, keep learning, you know. I, just, I wasn't going to stop. And uh, a person in the opening of the, uh, the, uh, the Kibbutz said to me, There's was a place, good yeshiva, called Hamiftar near Efrat. Sounds really good, little English speaking, but great. So I went to that. Ralei speaking place, beautiful countryside. Yeah, great, that's it. So I moved and uh, started learning for a year there. That was... <laughs> I wasn't really a beginner's yeshiva, as <laughs> people have learned before, but nevertheless, I just got stuck in and, you know, and uh, started learning. My first cut of Gemara and that, And Halakha, it was, was good. And then I got friendly with one of the guys in the Colal there who had been to Orsameach. Most of the, the people that came from uh, Chapelles. So I had good, good recommendations from this, this friend who went to Orsameach. At that time, I went to do my driving licence conversion test to convert my British driving licence to Israeli one. And I remember going to Talpiot and what happens is you have an hour or so on for a few minutes with the instructor, then you, drive, you go to the examination centre, he gets out and the examiner gets in and you have your test. So I, had my, I was driving around and he told me to pull over to the side of the road and there was a man standing with a black hat and so on. I got in the back and he got in the front of the car and he's driving around. And then after a while... When he wasn't driving, and I was speaking to him, I realized this was the guy my friend was talking about this great Bal Musa, this guy Raf Siegel. So, we both took the test, and they don't tell you if you pass the test in Israel, so you have to phone it with the one to find out. So, that was my first connection was with this rabbi, you know, in that, that situation. And I knew then that orsmaic was the place for me where I was going to go.
0: And if I'm following your story, you're now, I guess, in early mid 30s, you're clearly doing a lot of learning. What's the master plan? You, you want to stay and settle in Israel and meet someone there and have a family there? Is that where your mind is at? And what are your parents thinking? Last we discussed them, they were helping you slow down this process, but now clearly things have accelerated again.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, I didn't cut off with them. My three years with the reform community um, they would come and see me and things and even before i left for israel i had an adult bar mitzvah and they, they were invited to come to the show and they got you know nice, nice received and so they, i kind of brought them with me you know that was the thing in my years in israel too every six months or so i would fly back and see them for a, you know at a break time to see them and so i was also very close to them and they were interested here i was getting on and stuff there was no no problem um and uh, just keep doing what i'm doing i seem to be happy uh, as you said i was 33 when i came to israel and now when I went to Arsameach, I was about 35, <laughs> the Um I mean, love to yell yeah, to meet someone, but, you know, just taking it as it comes and it's in you know, learning more, it's, it's really good. When I got to Arsameach, the rabbi there said to me that for um, some reason, or not I'd, I think I wanted to become sfardi when I was in e- e- Frat. I got friendly with one of the sfardi guys in the Kolob. We were discussing all Svardi halakha and stuff, and I, I wanted to become sfardi but I realised the shows I went to on Shabbos, if I went to the Moroccan shows, it was very nice to see it, but I didn't usually get an aliyah, whereas... I went to the small Ashkenaz or Svarjul, I usually get an Aliyah of some sort, you know, Psika or Haggah. So that maybe, maybe I'm more meant to be in the Ashkenaz, <laughs> you know, European. So I discussed with the rabbi Orzimeh, changing my the film, and, and he said to me, look, I've spoken to Rabbi Eisenberg, the, uh, the POSIC, that it'd be a good thing if you did the Khariri uh, conversion, just to help things, you know, a lachuma thing a bit in the long run. So I agreed to do that, no problem. And that's what happened. I, I was learning at Orsameach and the, the rabbi there would then give reports back to Rav Nachman and tell him how he was doing and stuff. And um, about less than a year later, I uh, completed that process and did the Haredi, you know, look at the Chumra gear process of the Eisenberg. And uh, 30 days after that, met my, my, my wife. And that was it. And the three <laughs> months
0: later, we were married. So it was, you know, no stopping. Your life has a lot of uh, parts in it where things happen very quickly and it slows down and suddenly like leap forward. So what was her background compared to yours? Like why do they think this was a good matchup for you?
1: Uh, She was living in Israel, Balash Shuvah, didn't like a good match, you know, and and we both wanted to live in Israel and uh, just got to to meet each other and find out our interests in that. We seemed to be well suited. It was great. You know, we we got married in Shalim three months later.
0: And that's where you chose to settle? Like once you came out of the, the studying phase, like what are you doing now career-wise? Where is your family settled? Like take us inside the present day.
1: It's a very good question. I think I was still in full-time learning in the collo at that stage. I was enjoying it. Uh, wife was trying to see things. She was starting to work. So I wouldn't say there were any long-term plans for things. It was just more taking things as they come and just starting a family in New and, you know, enjoying being there. It was a very special time. Uh, her parents, um, the door was, also, was always open to come to America, Let's put it that way, <laughs> it was always open to come to America. Mm-hmm. But uh, after about four years of married, we decided to move to Manchester in England, good community there. I think I was finding it tougher. I think I was really wanting to become a froom Jew and I wasn't quite getting the language. So uh, recommended, I recommended um, by David Morgan stay on the posec I asked ask child to Someone like Manchester would be good for me. So. Uh, as you put it, I think it's the wrong time for you to be in Israel. So uh, we made plans and we moved to, to Manchester after I checked out first. And that seemed a very good community, very friendly, and you know, we moved to Manchester. And uh, my plan, original initial plan there was to be a teacher in the morning and keep learning in the afternoon or something, but that didn't work out because the British government brought in a law that said anyone bringing a, like a foreign spouse into Britain has to show good Parnassa. So I had to get back into my, my, my computer programming that I'd left almost, you know, ten years before, get back into that again and get myself, you know, back into that. In order to get her her spouse visa, the British equivalent of the green card. And uh, that's what I did. It was a great, great time in England. We had about six and a half years there. Um, My parents would come to visit us every six months, months or so. They could drive down from Scotland, it's not a problem. They're very supportive and very, you know, even in Israel. I remember my father one time we took I took my kids to the park and they're very young and my father's like oh you really you're really making it happen you really you know you really you really adjusting to this lifestyle very well <laughs> it made me think I wonder what he thinks about you know Orthodox Jews living in the Middle East it was kind of, I don't know what they think about that what you know non-Jews think about that that situation but uh, and he was very impressed with the Israelis the way they kind of build up the infrastructure he thought he was very impressed with that he thought it was really <laughs> excellent so he was very much <laughs> very happy <laughs> being in Israel.
0: You said your wife, though, was American. And there was this open invitation to come back there. So there must have been conversations that led to this idea of not going to America. So how did that come about? Like, what was going on between the two of you that you ultimately landed on where you went?
1: Come from Israel, we felt, we'd advised to the Manchester, was a very, very strong, very good, very good community. Maybe would be seeing too many distractions in America. And maybe that's the thing. With England, has not got so many distractions in a certain way. I put it this way, I think. It's easier for a British person to come to live and live long-term in America than it is for an American to live long-term in England. It's, it's, it's more tricky, I think. There's uh, a lot more sort of, um, I find, like, unspo- uh, non-verbal communication Winston Churchill famously said that England and America are two nations separated by a common language, which is kind of, it's, it's, it's a good way of putting it, but it's true because there's a lot of non-verbal communication that goes on in England. Uh, there's sort a of look and a kind of a nudge, nudge, wink, wink, say no more, that kind of a thing, you know, it's, uh, mm-hmm. whereas Americans they speak more clearly, so it's, it's, it's trickier. So we, we, we looked at it, and Manchester seemed very good, very good for us, very good fit for us, it very good and, and really up for it. And uh, my wife got all her teachers' blessings you know, and stuff to do that. And uh, we had plans to move to England, and we moved... And uh, enjoyed the kids all growing up there, you know. Uh, with the six and a half years we were there. As I said, keeping in contact with my own parents, you know, it was, it was good. But then we realised we wanted to be closer to my wife's parents. They're getting older and stuff, and we'd had good things about Cleveland in Ohio for many years and people. And so we went to look at America. I got a chance to come and visit in 2018. My brother in law got married in New York, and my in-laws lived in Central Jersey at the time. So it was crazy just to see them and then to get a flight across to Cleveland. Uh, checked out, you know, even houses. The headmaster, all really, really good, fantastic place. And we had plans the next, after next pesach to come and move to Cleveland, which is where we are now.
0: What an unbelievable journey, like all around the world, trying to find your home. So, how do you feel when you reflect back on the questions you were asking in those teen years, and Judaism wasn't even on the radar when you were asking those questions? All the crazy twists and turns your life took that ultimately landed in Cleveland, how do you reflect back now on that on that person who was searching and seeking and trying to find their home versus how you feel now?
1: It just takes time, it just takes time, you know, I, I didn't make any sudden impulse things or rash things, you know, I was always trying to be sensible as well as recognizing the, the, the feeling of yes, this is good, but then okay, let's be careful, you know, I, if that's a steady kind of just keep keeping going and not giving up, you know. If that was true, then keep keep going into it, you know, keep finding out more about it. Yeah, I mean, it does seem so long ago now, when I was that, that like child of 15, 16, you know, with my questions and things, and a very much more sort of narrow narrow worldview. But, uh yeah, the rabbi was right, God is with you. And I looked back, and even though I, I said it, take, it would have taken five to six years with the London-based inn, it took me six years to get to the point of conversion in Israel. So same amount of time, I just I did a different journey, <laughs> different places, and it's, it's all good, you know.
0: So I just want to tell you as we close the interview that something you told me right before we started was that you had listened to some episodes of Saturday to Shabbos and you really enjoyed the inspiration that you got from them. So, Yeshua, now you have gone to the other side and you are one of the people who has inspired others. So thank you for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos.
1: Thank you, Jeff. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you.
0: Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach, our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit That's tachlismedia.com. That's T A C H L I S media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.